There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. And today on the show, we are talking hunting whitetails on the ground. Natural blinds, ground blinds, spot and stalk, and using a decoy at eye level while moving in with a bow. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And we've got a extra special episode today because it's it's kind of a two-parter. Part two, the main episode, which I teased just a second ago, is all about hunting whitetails on the ground. It's with Travis Glassman. He is a diehard bow hunter from Kansas who has perfected a number of different techniques for chasing bucks at eye level. Uh, he's done it in ground blinds. He's done it in natural blinds. He's done it spot and stock. And he most interestingly does it with a handheld decoy that he uses in front of him to get these bucks to come right in, try to beat them up. And then he gets them, uh, gets them with an arrow before they can get him with their antlers. And uh, it's really, really interesting stuff. So that's, that's the main show. If you want to learn anything about different ways to get out of the tree and on the ground, this one's for you. But before we get to that, I have a special, special guest here for our introduction. The one and only nine-fingered wonder, my brother from another mother, Dan Johnson's back on the show, ladies and gentlemen. Dan, uh, I, I'm really glad we are able to make schedules work here kind of last minute because we haven't got to catch up in a couple months now. Uh, so thanks for figuring out a way to make this work. Hey, I appreciate it, Mark. But you forgot to mention one thing about Travis. Not only is he a great whitetail hunter, he, number one, he is a really good guy. Yeah. And number two, his wife is a slayer as well. True. She's she's put some really good deer on the ground. Really I, good deer on the ground. The two of them are a deadly duo, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a good podcast. And um with you though. Not well with you. It's going to be a good podcast too. <laughs> I, I didn't mean we'll see that. If I can't get censored today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what I what I want to do with you, man, is 
cover off on something that we usually that we have done every single year since the beginning of the podcast, which is do an episode where we cover off on our game plan for the year. You know, what our goals are, what the hunts are that we're going on, what our hopes are, uh, if there's any deer that we're chasing this year. Uh, and, and just because of how crazy this year's been, we haven't been able to do a full show. But I thought we could we could do like an intro conversation about that stuff. So kind of abbreviate it. And we're, we're partway into the season already, so I know it's late. But better late than never, I figured. Are, are you game for that? I'm game for that. But I want to sabotage this podcast for one, like real quick, just <laughs> yeah. for a second. Okay. Okay. Have you ever been, you're from Michigan. Have you ever been to Grand Haven, Michigan? Hell yeah, man. Okay. Love it. So shout out to one of my favorite bars in the, that I've been to in the country, the tip a few tavern in Grand Haven. Have you ever been there? I've not been there. Oh man. They make one of the most beautiful Jack and Cokes that I have ever drank. And it's really not a Jack and Coke. It's like a Coke and Jack, if that makes sense. they're they're pretty strong but uh i don't know i just figured i'd give a shout out to the state of michigan with uh, i'm looking at their koozie right here that's why i brought this up nice nice yeah grand haven was a place that i went a ton growing up because we didn't Mm -hmm. live too far from that when i was a kid so that was like the summer spot to go to but i haven't i haven't really been back since college probably so it's been a while so next time i do though i'll check it out yeah, give me a just send me a selfie with uh, at the at the tavern there. All right, Coke and Jack, I'll order it. Coke and Jack, yep, absolutely. <laughs> oh man, uh, it's not it's not a Mark and Dan podcast if there isn't a good alcohol <laughs> reference somewhere in there. So this is this is <laughs> or appropriate. Just like a, a hard right turn to something that has nothing to do with deer hunting. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, how you feeling about twenty twenty one? You've already had a hunt under your belt. So have I. I've had a handful. Uh, give me like on a one to 10 scale, like your, your sense of how it's going so far and how you feel about what's coming up. All right. So I, I'm, I'm going to just say this. All right. We've talked about this September shift for a while now. Yes. Right. Uh, we've mentioned it in several podcasts. So knowing about this, this shift that happens, um, and a lot of that Intel referenced is me checking my, my trail cameras that are normally on scrapes or field edges or things like that. And then there is a disappearance of all of these, these deer that these bucks that have been around all summer long, right? There's some some kind of shift. So knowing that back in late July, early August, I went out and I hung trail cameras in the timber, in some well-used trails, in some, like some terrain features that just have good deer travel um, downwind to some bedding areas. And then I went ahead and yesterday I broke my own rule that I always say, you know, stay out until you're getting ready to hunt. Yeah. I broke that rule just to check trail cameras. And wouldn't, you know, um, if you would, if we would have had this podcast yesterday or the day before, I would have said, ah, man, I just, there's nothing really there to, to, to get me fired up quite yet. Okay. But after yesterday checking these trail cameras, and not not only running into really good sign, but locating deer on some of those way back in the timber trail cameras that I went and checked, uh, things are looking good for uh, this upcoming year. Nice. All right, that's good news. So so give me the um, give me the Iowa rundown then. So based on what you saw 
or what you didn't see this summer, but what you're now yep. seeing here in October, do you have any returnees? Do you have anyone who's back from last year that's going to be at the top of your list? Yeah, I got one, one four-year-old who is, I think he's like an 11 pointer. Um, nothing crazy. And I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you this, you know, you heard me talk earlier this year and I think maybe even last year a little bit about how the the number of mature deer just aren't here anymore like they used to. I'm not sure what the change is. Yeah. I don't know if it's EHD. I don't know if it's pressure, whatever. Last year and this year have just not been the same as previous. And with everything that I'm about to say, it's still a well below average year for the properties that I hunt. And that includes some of the public that I have trail cameras on as well. So with that said, um, I, I think I counted this, this weekend, there's four, four, I'm guessing four-year-olds. One might be a five-year-old that, um, are running around on the farm that I hunted. And I only got to check half the farm. I didn't, I wasn't able to get, uh, get to uh, the second half of the farm. So nice. Yeah. So that's solid. What's the, yeah, this 11 pointer that's back. Yep. Anything yep. of the others, any, anything notable, any of them that are like super frequent or daylight or anyone that you've really got your hopes pinned on? Yeah. So all of them, just because I've been back in the timber in, in the thick areas there, I got daylight pictures of all of them. So the thing about it is, is, uh, knowing like one of them is one of the pictures just kind of random, which makes me feel that the camera is hung close to where he beds is like, uh, a noon on a, on a really, on a fairly warm day in October, wow. he's up on his feet. So maybe he, maybe he got jumped, but there's, there's been no pressure back there that I can tell. Um, maybe, maybe a coyote jumped him. Maybe he stood up to stretch his legs and, you know, walk around for a little bit. I don't know. But, um, we have, and it's hard to tell one could be a returning customer. He's just a giant 150 class eight pointer Whew. with yeah, like a dagger coming out of his base about I'd Lord. Say, yeah, three or four inches. So he's a, a big eight pointer. Um, that's, that's around there, but it, you know, who knows if he's a return customer or not. Cause you know, it's hard to, I'd have to go through and dig on some, some cameras, other than that, man, just uh, a, a nice clean 150 class 10 and then another 145 to 50 class rough guess nine pointer who's uh, really wide. But he's the one that might be the uh, the five year old. He's got a pretty big body. Sweet. So what's the what's the game plan there then? Do you have your usual rotation time period that you're going to save yeah. it for or what's the what's the hunt strategy at high level? Yeah. So Friday of this week, I leave for South Dakota and I'm there for a while and then I'll come back, you know, play catch up at home. It's really hard to get out during the week with the amount of activities that the kids have. Um, next week, uh, the week after next, actually, things start to die down and the fall activities start to stop, which means that I'll be able to get out on the, during the second half of the week. So my wife works Mondays and Tuesdays. And of course the weekends really, I mean, the next weekend that I'm going to be able to hunt is probably a Friday and the Friday and Saturday, the what 29th and 30th of October. And then I have Halloween on Sunday 
and then it's from there it's just kind of game time you know what i mean uh, i probably honestly i probably won't hunt much the first three days of november but the closer to that end of the week um that's when i'll probably head down to the main farm um while i'm up here though i'll be hunting on the farm that's close to my house and then some of the public that's in the area uh this late summer me and my son saw a really good 150 inch 10 pointer working this bean field so i think he's in the area and uh i don't know man it's like i i really haven't been thinking i've actually been trying to curb my excitement because i know if i take one step too close then it's over and then i'm thinking all i'm doing is thinking about hunting when i need to be focusing <laughs> on the the work on um the family before i go crazy and just you know just disappear well do you not do you not feel any temptation after pulling those cameras yesterday and getting daylight pictures of those bucks recently like knowing oh, yeah. that you could slip right back in there where they were daylight i mean if they're if they're daylight what are you waiting for yeah exactly i has that passed is that like flash through your mind yeah it's the first thing that passed through my mind <laughs> when, I saw, when i saw the picture yeah i mean it's just like oh hey this guy's daylight and then i got, I got a couple other of those those shooter caliber deer are on um uh like I would say 45 minutes before dark, 30 minutes before dark, or even coming back to their bed in daylight. Uh, So I would say like 30 minutes after like legal shooting light. So they're there, they're moving. It's just, what do I want to do? Do I want to go right now and try to get on these deer? Or I guess what I'm doing is I'm playing the numbers game, right? The hunting is going to be better in November. There's going to be more movement in November. Yeah, the chaos of the rut could really screw me and these deer could just disappear and follow a doe into a different farm or whatever. But I would rather stick to the schedule, not throw any curveballs to the wife, than get out and go isolate where I don't have any problem. She knows that I'm gone, right? It's not something that's surprise, you know, like, Hey, yeah. you mind if I go hunt three days to chase this deer? Because what, what, what happens is, and I think, I think we've all been here before is we start to hunt too early and we, we go hard. You don't get your deer. And now what? Now you're forced to hunt the rut. And then towards the end of this time that you've dedicated previously, mm-hmm. then the patient starts to wear off. Yeah. And then it's just like, Hey, uh, I, you know, you've been hunting for three weeks now instead of two what's what's going on you know like yeah. hey i need some help and then that patience you know it's like i don't know man it, it's uh it happens every single year yeah you gotta walk that tightrope real careful yep and you've got these other these other trips so mule deer in nebraska and mule deer in south dakota right yep i'm done with the mule deer in uh well actually it was a mule deer whitetail hunt because we were hunting mule deers Mule deer in the mornings, they were coming off of, uh, they were coming off one chunk of public onto another chunk of public to bed for like 30 minutes in the morning. So you had to catch them as they, as they started to come through. But then in the evenings, I found a buck bed and I watched this buck two days in a row stand up out of the same bed. And, uh, the first day, night I went out there, it was, it was just to look, I was sitting over a green field that was on private. So I was on public watching the private, watching the deer kind of funnel out towards the, the green field. 
And so that's when I saw that white-tailed buck stand out of his bed. Then the next night, I went right back to the same place, but I closed like 120 yards on him. And uh, I had the wind in my favor. I know he couldn't see me, but I was at like 40 yards on a frontal. And he was looking right at, like, right in my direction, feeding. And I put my heel down. And it was windy up top, but down in the bottom, it was real quiet. And th- it was a small twig, but it sounded like someone broke a baseball bat. <laughs> and, and that was and, it. And it was, I mean, I'll tell you, I don't know what's your experience with this. Spookiness of whitetails in the out west. I feel like it's crazy. They're like, they don't take. They don't take any risks compared to like a Midwest whitetail. Even even the deer in Michigan, when I when I had those encounters in Michigan, hung around for just a little bit to kind of like put their nose up and stomp. But the deer out there, he didn't see me. He didn't have my wind. He heard a noise he didn't like. He was he was gone like in 10 seconds. There was yeah. no no screwing around for them. He must have been having some people bugging him for a while leading up to that. Sounds like he was on edge. I don't know. Every whitetail I see out there is like that. Uh, but I mean, I, I got close. I, I was like one step away from drawing back on him and it didn't, he, and it was great for a Nebraska deer. It's like 130 inch 10 pointer, man. It yeah. was a beautiful, beautiful three-year-old. That's sweet. So then going into the South Dakota hunt, what's the, what's the goal for that? You had a tough Nebraska hunt that didn't go the way you wanted. I know you last yeah. year, kind of a tough one. So are you going to shoot anything? Are you trying to get a buck? Like what's, <laughs> where are you at? You know, you know how it goes. Uh, the, <laughs> yeah. the first, the first, uh, I say to myself, oh man, first thing that moves, I'm going to get it. But I get out there and then I'm just like, all right, we're going after a buck for the yeah. first couple of days. And then the first couple of days go by and I, I didn't get a, uh, you know, no shot opportunities on a buck. And now you're like, okay, it's getting towards, it's getting close to the end. I'm going to go shoot a doe. Well, then the buck shows up the last couple of days. Then you go after the bucks and then here you are. It's the last hunt of the entire trip. And now you're like, okay, I got to get something now. Mm-hmm. I want to go get a doe. And then the does don't show up. Uh-huh. So <laughs> <laughs> brutal, but that's, yeah. so you're, you're going to ride with that usual plan that always works so well for us. Right. <laughs> oh Yeah. Yep. Yep. I'll probably shoot myself in the foot like I did the last three times I went to South Dakota, but man, I, I, I just love, love it out there. And I wanted to get, I wanted to hunt a different time of year. Like a lot of people go out the first two weeks mm-hmm. of, you know, to any Western type, they try to get the opener. Um, and I wanted to kind of wait and get closer towards November. So hopefully there might be, you know, there might be some kind of additional movement cooler, cooler temps, you know, um, I don't know, man, I'm just excited for this trip. Like I always am. I can see why it seems like even though, you know, it hasn't quite come together yet. You guys are always in beautiful country. You've seen some really good deer out there. I know that one year your buddy smashed a dandy. So it's, Oh yeah, this is your, this is your time. Yep. Hopefully. So Uh, is there anything else in your schedule other than that? You'll come back, do the Iowa thing. Is that basically the, a wrap? Yeah. I mean, unless last year, the wife was cool with me going to, uh, um, South Dakota again in December, but that was with only one, one trip last year. That was only South Dakota. I didn't do anything in September. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see how happy uh, she is (laughs) Uh after, you know, after 
you're right before Christmas or whatever the deal is. And I don't know, man. Uh, but you know, I've been taking care of her, you know, taking her out to dinners and doing those brownie points, you know, oh, yeah. doing some, doing some projects around the house. And, uh, I think, he, I, I think that's completely underestimate, like underrated, like taking care of the home, like people just live a normal life. And then they, it's all of a sudden it's hunting season. They don't prepare their family for it. And then it's just chaos at home. And then you can't hunt, you know, you can't hunt happily. Oh yeah. And, uh, so gotta I don't get know, man. Got to get that balance right. Got to, got to invest uh, ahead of time yeah. in certain ways. Yep. But I will say one thing. All right. So I think it was 2007. No, it would have been 16. Ooh, way back in the golden days. Yeah. Way back. So. I had a, this bottom field and I can't remember, I think you might've came down there with me, uh, when you shed hunted that farm, yep. it's way down in the bottom. And it was, uh, it was a cornfield the year that you came down to shed hunt it. But so what happens was they, they fertilize it, they plant it. And then I think early on it flooded and I remember all of this. The, yeah, all of the crops died. And, um, so the fertilizer's in the ground, the water goes away, the seeds are rotten, it's too wet to replant, and now throughout the summer, these weeds have grown to this six-foot-high-ish um, type, type area, you know, like size. And the last time that that happened, that farm, the, that part of the farm had, was stacked with deer. Like, I mean one of the greatest ruts that I ever had out on that farm. And, um, although I did, I shot my deer that year up higher, um, on the farm, uh, it still, hold, it still held a lot of great deer. And so that happened again this summer. Nice. And so I'm excited to get back there and, uh, see what, uh, I, I put two more trail cameras up in that area this, you know, uh, yesterday. And so when I start the rotation, uh, I'll go check those cameras and kind of see what's going on. And hopefully it's a repeat of the, that, you know, that year. That's great news. Yeah. It's exciting. Well, yeah. 2021, man, big mule deer yeah. in South Dakota, big old giant Iowa. And yeah. then you'll somehow convince your wife to let you go back out to Nebraska and you'll kill that whitey. <laughs> That's my prediction for your year. Uh, it, I'll tell you what, if I, if I, kill the deer in Minnesota or excuse me in uh South Dakota and kill a good one in Iowa there's no chance I'm going back to South Dakota <laughs> or uh, Nebraska because she'd be like uh haven't you had enough yeah. you know like I think you've had enough right you've had enough you've had enough success for this year so <laughs> fair enough we can dream right yeah right you know something uh... bad would have to happen like she'd have to go into a coma for a while for me to go on that trip <laughs> Well, I'm going to hope it's just a two buck year then for you, buddy, for the sake of your wife. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, what, I'm not saying like anything bad would happen. You hear stories like that, right? Where, oh no, someone slipped into a coma for uh, a month and then they popped out of it and they're fine. You hear stories like no, that. No, I've never, I've never once heard a story though, where someone's <laughs> wife goes into a coma and the husband says, well, I guess I might as well go hunting. <laughs> never heard that one, Dan. <laughs> Well, some, I mean, someone would have to take care of the kids. I might pull them out of school and they might just live in the truck. But you, you are horrible. No, I'm not horrible. I'm just trying to, because technically this is my job. And I think, I think that, you know, if, 
This is what I she mean, would want you to do, right? Exactly. Exactly. Let me ask you a question. <laughs> what? If you saw if one of your great, if Furter's wife slipped into a coma and he was having a hard try, time dealing with it, wouldn't you say, hey, Furter, maybe you should go hunting to relieve your stress? I mean, I'm, I might say go out for a night and I'll hang out at the hospital. Okay. But I don't know if I would take off like a two week trip or a week long no. trip to South Dakota. That's too, That's too much. I mean, let's think about it, Mark. She's not going anywhere. Oh, gosh. So, so horrible. <laughs> oh, man. I, I'm, I hope she never slips into a coma. I, I really hope that she does not as well. And I know you take good care of her. I know she's a smart lady and healthy lady. So, uh, knock on wood, we should be okay. <laughs> So anyways, hunting. <laughs> yeah. So wait a second. Are you like, where's your level at right now? Cause I'm, you know, I'm middle of the road. I'm sitting probably at a five or a six for whitetails in Iowa. I'm, I leave Friday. I'm at probably a nine right now for South Dakota mule deer. Where are you sitting at for your adventure, upcoming adventures? I'm in like a weird place, Dan. Um, I'm at like a, like, uh, concerned six a concerned six yeah so so let me let me paint you the picture of of my world this fall and i think we talked about this a little bit offline but i'll 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 spell it all out for everyone and the re like the reason i have some trepidation is because it's it's by far the craziest fall i've ever had um and so it's going to be it's just gonna be tough on the family life and and my sanity as well so so I did this uh, public land whitetail hunt in Idaho at the beginning of the year that me and Furter did together. And, uh, you know, tough hunt, had some close calls, just didn't quite come together. But but cool. Um, and then Michigan, of course, opened up on October 1st. So I've got that going on. And in a second here, I can give you some details on, on what deer I'm hunting there and what happened the first couple of days of the season. Uh, but the big wild card is that I'm filming two new shows this year uh, that are requiring that I travel a ton. So one of these shows, the basic gist, if I were to like oversimplify it, is kind of taking the Wired Hunt podcast idea on the road and filming it. So the idea here is that I go and I meet with some expert in deer hunting that has like a very specific, unique angle on how they hunt and, and the unique place they hunt. And I'm going to go out and visit with this person and spend a day or two with them, basically doing a podcast, but in real life. So following along with them to learn how they do what they do, asking them why they do this. Why is this the spot? Why do you use this this bow? Why do you uh, think about it this way? Why is this location right? And and go through the whole thing and actually tag along for a hunt with them and, and break it all down. So try to learn as much as I can, dissect their approach, just like what we do here. But then... I have to take what I learned over that day and a half, and then I need to try to pull off the hunt myself. So now I have to go off on my own, taking what I learned from this expert, and I'm in their area now. So there's new country, new spots, new techniques, and I have to try to guinea pig it and implement it and try to kill a deer. So that's that's the thing I'm trying to do this fall across six different places for this show this season. Um and then in between all of that, I'm also filming a different show, which is focused on just one single week in Iowa. Um, so I've got that hunt first week in November, 
which will be kind of a standard seven days of hunting nonstop in the rut. So that's one thing. But then this other show has got a hunt that I just finished. I just got home late last night from Washington, D.C. I was chasing suburban bucks and suburban does with Taylor Chamberlain out in the suburbs, which was a very interesting, wild, insane trip that I'm going to have in a, another podcast, the details of it, but I'll just tell you it was, it was like nuts. Um, so that was a learning experience. Um, and then I'm going to Arkansas next week. So in like six days I leave for Arkansas and I'm going to go out there with Clay Newcomb and we're going to be learning from his, one of his like mountain man type mentors all about how kind of the old school mountain man way of deer hunting from the ground with a muzzle loader out in the mountains, national forests and stuff. Uh, so we're going to take mules back into some random place in Arkansas, live out there for a week and, and chase deer on the ground like that. And then I'm home for six, seven days. And then I take off for that Iowa hunt that I just described. And then I leave immediately from that hunt to go out to Nebraska and go hunt the open country grassland type stuff with a guy named Tony Treach who has perfected kind of a similar thing to what Travis is going to talk about today in the podcast, which is killing these deer with a bow on the ground using a decoy. So I want to try that myself now. Um, and then I come home for a week and then I go to Maine and I'm meeting up with Hale Blood and uh, we're going to, I'm going to learn how to track deer in the snow and try to follow their tracks right to the buck standing there and, and get a crack at him with a rifle. And that's going to be crazy and interesting. Uh, and then I'm home for a week and then I've got, a another one that I still tentative, so I can't lay out details, but I think it looks like I'm going to be going to Alabama for a very interesting hunt in early December. And then in early January, going to Wisconsin for another interesting one where we will be taking a unique look and meeting with a unique person out there, uh, kind of putting the lens back on the the more common like Midwestern management world of deer hunting, but from an interesting perspective and doing a hunt there. Um, so it's, I mean, it's just a lot of travel and a lot of like quick hunts. So I've got like a day and a half with these people learning about what they do. And then I have like three, three and a half days to try to do it myself. Um, so it's exciting. Like I'm going to learn a lot and I see a lot of interesting things, but that trepidation is, you know, it's going to be really hard to actually get anything killed in these kinds of situations. And it's, it's just going to be a tough fall from a balancing family and travel and all that kind of stuff. So that is, that's the, that's the crazy I've got staring me in the face right now. Well, let me ask you this. Would you rather, you know, obviously you're not really a 100% in control of uh, all of the places that you're going. I mean, it sounds like if you had your way, you might spend some more time in some places. So the question I have for you is, would you rather hunt five states at three days at a pop or maybe three, two or three states at uh, five to seven days at a pop. I mean, if it was just like to try to kill a good buck, like if I weren't doing the show and if it was just right. for like my own right. goals of killing a good buck, definitely fewer States, longer period, hundred percent. The trick yeah. is that we're, you know, trying to get, you know, a certain number of episodes. Right. And, um, 
that's the trick with it. And I, I don't want to be gone a crazy amount of time because I'm trying to make sure that I'm not always gone. So it's like, I need more, I ideally like more hunting days, but at the same time, I don't want to be away from the family more too. So it's, yeah, it's, uh, I think what it's going to come down to is that I'm, I'm going to be, you know, I'm not going to be targeting big giant bucks, right? It's going to yeah. be more. So I'm going to learn about this style of hunting. And if I can get a crack at a doe, I'll be stoked. If I can get a crack at a two-year-old buck or three-year-old buck, I'll be stoked. Um, and I think I'm, I'm looking at this fall as much more of a, I'm going to learn a ton. And I, hopefully this will be a, a tool to teach people a lot. And, and I'm not going to get down on myself if I don't shoot a bunch of big old bucks because that's, that's just not the thing I'm going for this year. So it's going right. to be different. Yeah. Well, I hope you uh, find success, my friend. And it sounds like uh, you're going to have some uh, some help, at least from some quote unquote experts that are going to help point you in the right direction. Oh yeah, I mean, awesome, awesome people to learn from in person, and I mean, it's going to be really interesting digging into what these people do and how they do it. So, if nothing else, I'm going to come out of the season with a, a totally new perspective, having hunted all these different places and all these different ways, uh, which you know is, is going to be a good thing in the long run. I just don't know what it's going to mean for how many tags I fell or like if I can roll out of bed on January 1st and like walk, (laughs) but we'll see. But I do think I feel good about the Iowa hunt. I mean, I've got some stuff that I knocked on doors a number of years ago that I have access to again. Um, I've got a buddy's property. He's going to let me slip in there if I need to. So there's a couple spots where I think I can get something. I can get a decent deer in, in Iowa. Uh, I'm excited about that. And, you know, on the local stuff in Michigan, I've got a couple good bucks that made it from last year. Um, so I feel even though I won't have a lot of time to put into those, I think um, maybe just be a little more targeted and and hopefully take advantage of, you know, a lot of historical data on those deer. I've got three bucks from last year, two bucks for sure that I want to target this year that I passed last year a bunch. Um, there's this really nice 12 pointer who I, I believe is for, and uh, I was calling him rookie of the year last year, and he's back and been very daylight. And then there's another big eight pointer who I passed a bunch last year. He's back. He's probably like a hundred and thirty something inch eight, four year old, which is a really good one for around here. I have pictures of him in early September, but I haven't checked uh, pictures of him on a cell camera. I haven't checked any regular cameras. So I don't know if he's anywhere else. Um, and then there's this wild card buck. There's this, Short time nine pointer from last year, who I thought was two last year. So I assumed he'd be a three year old this year and that I wouldn't be interested in hunting him. But I've seen him a couple times now, including opening night and the next day in the morning. And then I saw him again last night. I got out for a little glassing session and saw him. And he looks like a tank. I mean, he's not big bodied. He's still, he's like short. He's a short but very wide nine pointer, kind of like that wide eight pointer I shot in the back 40 a couple years ago. Um, but his body does not look like a three-year-old. So I don't I don't know if he just has an abnormally really big body and he is actually three or if I misjudged him last year and he was actually three last year and just wasn't very impressive antler-wise, so I undersold on him. And then this year he is a big, chunky four-year-old. And I don't know. I'm going to have a – if he comes in and he looks as good up close, I, I might be very tempted to – to send one at him because these pictures I'm getting of him on the cell camera and, and then just kind of seeing him running through a couple times. He's, uh, he looks good. So that's awesome, man. Yeah. 
So, awesome. you know, there's there's some exciting stuff. That very first night of the season, I got a cell cam picture of that 12-pointer of Rookie the night before in daylight at one of my spots. So I, I made a move, aggressively went in there with a saddle, set up on that spot, hoping he'd come through, and he didn't. But he showed up with that short wide nine about 120 yards away. And so I saw them go by that night. And then the next morning I couldn't hunt, but I could glass and I watched them go right by that same spot in the morning back to bed. So the second night of the season, I went in, walked a Creek in back behind this thick brushy stuff and got right up in like the edge of where I think they're bedded, slipped in there in a, during a rainstorm, climbed up in the tree right where they passed by the night before and that morning. And I was thinking, man, this is it. Perfect. And then they didn't show. So you know how that goes. That's how it is. Yeah. So it was, it was a fun first couple of days of the hunt of the season, and felt like I was in the game on them. So that was all I've done in Michigan so far, and I don't know if I'm going to hunt at all this week because of the fact I'm you know leaving again so soon. So it might be take this week off and not hunting again until late October for those deer. But that's that's what I got here in Michigan. Um, if I don't kill them in late October, it's going to be like a late season thing because November is so busy. So. That's uh, that's my story, man. It's going to be a different kind of year, different kind of goals, hopes, and hit lists this year for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sending good vibes your way, man. I do appreciate it. I, uh, I hope that South Dakota goes well so you don't have to have this really weird situation play out so you can finagle <laughs> an extra way to get back down there. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Johnson, we found you Google searched how to put your wife in a coma. Uh, we uh, that's illegal. Okay, yeah, yeah. That that would be one time I'd be okay with the NSA snooping in to, to make sure you don't go one step too far with your hunting obsession. <laughs> hey, I got a question for you. Um, yeah. Does Rookie of the Year have a sweet goatee? <laughs> See, I knew you'd like this. He. I know. he He's got some interesting facial hair. I wouldn't say it's a sweet goatee like I've got, but he does have like a white patch on his forehead. So oh, okay. there's a little something there. Makes him. Because that's that's your nickname. I know. I know. I'm, and I'm applying it to a buck. So, yeah, yeah buddy. Hey, I hope you I hope you hit him with the curve. I'm going to give it my best shot. And uh, I hope the same for you, man. Thanks for, thanks for hopping on here quick to do this today. I know that folks have been asking where, where's the goals, hopes and hit list conversation. We need to know what you two are doing. So we did it. It's out there. And uh, if anything weird goes on in Iowa, they, they can point back to this as far as uh, uh, what do they call motive for the crime. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's all out there for the world to see. So we're good. Now, now I definitely can't put my wife into a coma because this, this is all like now it's premeditated. Oh gosh. Okay. We, we, <laughs> to make it clear, Dan, Dan Johnson, Dan Johnson would never do anything ill-advised. He's a wonderful family man, a great dad and husband. And we believe that you have only the best of intentions, right? My friend. Only the best intentions. Only the best intentions. Well, uh, good luck in South Dakota. And when you get going in Iowa, I know you'll be keeping me posted. I can't wait to hear how it goes. Same to you, man. All right. And with that all said, let's get into the next phase of this podcast, which is talking ground game for Whitetails with Travis Glassman. Yeah. 
pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here and it solves a real problem okay so this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools like a griddle on your grill it's pre-seasoned with food safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box there's no use of coatings okay you can use metal tools to flip press and scrape without worry it's the griddle that stays ready not rusty now everything the problem with griddles everything rusts no one talks about how bad everything rusts uh, the reason they don't because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill, will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. All right, I am here now with Travis Glassman. Travis, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Mark, for having me. I'm uh, excited for this one, as I think probably our listeners should know by now. I can't remember if I've mentioned this or not, because my life's crazy these days, but I am heading out to the plains of Nebraska this year, and I'm going to do some ground hunting for whitetails with my bow. And in preparation for that, I've been digging in and researching different people that have done this and looking into different ways of doing it and exploring all that. And your name was one that kept popping up as a guy that has got this thing nailed down. You figured out how to kill whitetails on the ground with a bow. And that's what I want to talk to you about. So uh, my question first for you, Travis, is how did this thing start for you? Because I actually I actually started hunting whitetails on the ground with a bow too, but it was because my mom wouldn't let her little son Mark sit in the tree stand at the time. So I was forced to be on the ground. <laughs> yeah. why, why did you go to the ground? Is it, well, I, I, I won't try to answer for you. How did it begin for you? Okay. So I too, um, back, well, for, 
back in clear up when I started bow hunting, I was about oh, 15 years old. I had a, I was very lucky to have a buddy who took me along with him and, and I didn't even have a bow. I, I went along and him and his dad, um, hunted a little bit of private, some public here in Kansas and they, they primarily hunted tree stands. And so I learned too, um, the whole tree stand game and, you know, we don't have as many trees. Um, I live in the Western part of Kansas, so it's a lot of open spaces, but you know, there are trees here and there in, in some of the drainages and whatnot. And so we would always, always look for those areas to hunt and set up a tree stand. <clears throat> and I've spent a lot of hours in a tree stand myself and always saw a lot of deer, you know, mostly does and young bucks and, um, wondered always why I never consistently saw mature bucks in those wooded areas. And over the years, I just kind of started paying attention. And, and then I, where the turning point was, is why I, ha I had a buddy take me along and kind of introduce me to, um, the run and gun spot and stock kind of decoy game. And, and at that point I was hooked on that. And, and I really started digging in and honing my own way of doing it. And, uh, and so, yes, I mean, a couple of different points we can cover is, you know, ground setup as far as ground blinds, stuff like that. And then also, um, how, I, how I approach ground hunting and spot and stock and run and gun and whatnot. So, um, yeah, to, to answer your question, you know, I started out tree stand hunting and then I realized real quick that to consistently kill and see the biggest bucks, um, because of our terrain out here you know the big bucks like to separate themselves from the bigger herds or the does or the small bucks or whatever they're they're very much you know to themselves and and that's how they survive you know the bigger mature bucks the only time they're around the other deer from what i've seen is one at night because they are doing their scent checking and and figuring out when things are getting close to the rut and whatnot but you know, for the most part, when they're just living their lives, they, they don't really like to hang out with a lot of other deer. And so, uh, during the rut, um, I, I, you know, we all find a whole, you know, get a whole bunch of trail camera pictures through the night of mature bucks and, and coming through all of our tree stand areas, but never or rarely see them during the daytime. And so that's when I started kind of taking a step back and <clears throat> basically those areas where I, hunted i'll either set up a, a observation stand to you know see a lot of country first thing in the morning or last light and usually you know you see those mature deer standing up somewhere it may be you know half mile out in the middle of a crp field or um in in a, one little tiny patch of brush in a fence line that's way away from everything else and you realize real quick that they're never going to make it to your tree stand by shooting light or during shooting light. So, you know, in those circumstances, you have to go to them in order to kill them. So mm -hmm. what I would start doing is figuring out a pattern from an observation stand or sitting up on a hill watching behind a spotting scope for a few days or a few, you know, mornings or whatever. So just taking a step back is a huge benefit and, and just being very patient behind your glass <clears throat> and then, coming up with a, a really good game plan. And then, and then at that point, it's really a kind of a natural thing to me is either, you know, one, you set up a ground blind in a travel corridor that's very near their bedding area, or 
uh, during the rut, you know, say they have a, a doe that they've found through the night and they've separated off and taken out into these wide open spaces. And, uh, of course they're going to bed those does down and they're going to defend that doe for the whole time that they're breeding them. And, and when they're satisfied, they'll obviously go on to the next, but as you know, um, you know, watching, ob- observing from a long ways away, watching how these big bucks act, and and you hopefully will get to see that. I'm not sure the exact time frame that you're going to Nebraska, but it'll be November. You sh- okay? Well, you should see a. You know, I'm I'm guessing you'll see younger bucks that smell the hot dough, and they will be coming in and trying to follow their nose to do what they do. Uh, you know, they they're there to breed does, so. Yep. Uh, hopefully you find a situation where you have a, a dominant buck bedded down with a doe pinned down and they, you know, they'll stand up randomly, you know, throughout the day and they'll just kind of scent checker and make sure that no other bucks are approaching. And, uh, then they'll obviously fight to keep that doe. Well, that is the single most important thing to focus on as as far as killing a big mature buck and why i say that is take advantage of his high testosterone his aggressiveness and i like to use a decoy and you know specifically i use heads up decoys just because i'm you know they're manufactured here close to where i live and i've become good friends with garrett but anyway i'll take a, a buck decoy and I'll get the wind right and then I'll kind of sneak in within, you know, 80 yards or, you know, try to get as close as you can. Um, and then present that decoy. And because that buck is defending his doe, he is likely going to come and, uh, try to, to defend that doe and he's going to try to whoop your tail, you know? So, um, once I get within that, range where i feel like it's it's a good time to present the decoy um i'll do that and then usually just be patient um reactions are going to be different you know sometimes it is instant where you you better be 100 percent ready with an arrow knocked and and everything prepared because sometimes it happens very quick and sometimes they'll stand up and they'll look at you and and they'll just kind of you know see you and, and as long as you're far enough away, they're okay with that. And, and it may be that, you know, eventually when they get up, especially if the doe gets up and, and kind of feeds around a little bit, and if she happens to see the decoy and is curious and kind of starts coming your way, then he'll, you know, start getting aggressive at that point and try to get between you and the doe and, and potentially try to come, you know, push you out. And so it, it happens differently each time it seems like, and, uh, but yeah, you just have to be adaptive and, and behind the decoy and whatnot. And, and we can go into kind of mounting and the decoy and whatnot. So, yeah. yeah. So, so I want to hit pause there because I want to, okay. I want to get really deep into how you do this decoy thing. But before we get mm-hmm. to that, I want to mm-hmm. rewind a little bit more to the beginning and, and kind of answer a few questions that I know people are having listening to this specifically mm-hmm. people that maybe are hunting further to the East or in the Midwest, and they've been told their whole lives that, well, you can't kill a buck on the ground because you're you're at eye level with them, or they're just too spooky, or your wind's going to be in their face, or it's hard to see stuff, or whatever it might be. There's all these 
downsized to hunting on the ground. And, and for a lot of years, I was hearing those things too and thinking to myself, man, you got to be in a tree. You got to be in a tree. Mm-hmm. Um, but now you've, you've done this and you've been on the ground in blinds. You've been spotting, stalking. You've used decoys. You've spent a ton of time on the ground. So mm-hmm. when you hear those objections, what do you, what do you say to those objections? Is there truth to it, or is it a lot of a lot of worry and and concern about nothing? No, there's there's definitely a lot of concern about nothing. And to be real honest with you, I I know that there are people listening who have had that moment where they're sitting in a tree stand, and then they see a buck bedded down, you know, locked down with a doe, and and they sit there and they sit there and they think there's about a 10% chance or less of that deer standing up and walking by, but you're, you're darn sure going to put in the time uh-huh. because you, you have faith, you have hope, right? This sounds like me well, a time or two. <laughs> if even in heavily wooded areas, if you have a small opening to where you can see a deer bedded, you know, if you have any terrain at all to be able to stock closer, uh, especially with having a decoy in front of you, I would highly encourage climbing down as quietly as you can and start the stock and get that decoy presented to that deer. Because again, his instinct is to protect what he's got. And by you, by him seeing a decoy, and even if you incorporate a grunt tube by giving some vocalizations along, so you have, you have a sound and you have a visual with the decoy, then you have movement with the decoy because you have it in your hand those three things he will not be able to resist i'm going to say 95 percent of the time are you going to have situations where something doesn't go quite right or if a doe sees you on your way and busts out and, and messes up the whole thing yes but the chances of you killing that deer are way way higher than that deer standing up and walking by you in your tree stand is, is my argument. And so I, I'm going to try it every single time. Obviously I'm going to use my hunting instincts to get myself in the right position, make sure the wind's right, make sure you don't see any other deer on your way. And I mean, it's, it's all those things, but that's how I handle that situation. I, I encourage people all the time that, that don't think that this is an option for them, you know, Oh, it's just too thick. And, and I understand some people hunt strictly woods and it's extremely difficult, you know, maybe impossible. But if you have any openness at all, don't rule it out is all I would say. All right. So that seems fair. And I think you've convinced me that this is something that could work, you know, in certain spots in Michigan or Mississippi mm-hmm. or New York, just as much as it could work in Kansas. You just need to kind of pick your spots and your times, right? So right. I do want to get into general open country stuff eventually. I do want to get into some of your experiences with ground blinds. But since we're talking about the decoy, moving in on them, let's just get into that. Let's cover that in detail. Let's start there. Uh, okay. So you mentioned that you use a heads up decoy for people that don't know what that is. Can you describe specifically like what this thing is, how it works? Because some people probably aren't following you. They're thinking you're carrying a big 20 pound 3d thing out there. Sure. So heads up decoy is, is 
just a silhouette of a deer. I, I know some people may know what a silhouette looks like. You know, Montana decoy makes like a full body silhouette, but heads up decoy made one that's more mobile to where it's only from like the neck up. And it's, it's, I know when you look at it, um, you're thinking, man, is that, th- is that enough? Is that enough to convince deer that you're a deer? And think about this, you know, a lot of times whenever a deer is standing in any sort of cover at all, all you see is the front shoulders up a lot of times. And, and at first I was honestly skeptical when I first seen it and started using it. And I actually, again, luckily had a guy, you know, kind of had some good experiences with it before and showed me. And, and then once you see it, you, you have to experience it and understand it. And, and, it, it, yeah, to, to convince yourself that it's the best idea. And so anyway, to answer your question, it's a heads up decoy is a silhouette showing a deer looking your direction and, uh, they make deer and, and antelope and elk and moose and whatever. But anyway, I, I focus obviously on deer and, and we thankfully have the option out here where I live to experience mule deer and whitetail hunting. So uh, I use both, but for this, talking about whitetails, I primarily use the whitetail buck decoy, um, just because I take advantage of their uh, aggression towards other bucks. But uh, there are circumstances with mule deer I like to use a doe, but we can talk about that at a later time. So that that is what a heads up decoy is, and I encourage everybody to either search it or you know you can look at you know my YouTube channel or the heads up decoy YouTube channel or, or whatever you want to do, but yeah, you'll see. <laughs> now, now, how do, do you just handhold it and stick it in the ground or do you use a bow attachment ever? Talk to me about that. Sure. So there are different options. Um, they do have a bow mount that you can, um, screw onto the port where your stabilizer goes. Um, some stabilizers have a hole on the end of the stabilizer that you can mount it to your stabilizer, or you can, remove your stabilizer, um, put this mount in place, um, or you can kind of put it behind your stabilizer. So you just have to, I mean, you just have to play with what works best for you if you want to have it on your bow. Now, if, if I was in an area where I knew things were going to happen up close and personal, um, and, and there's not a lot of wind, uh, I would not hesitate to put it on my bow just because, you know, you kind of have it, hanging off to the side so like say i'm a right-handed shooter um it would the decoy would kind of come up and to the left like it's you know uh you know a neck kind of curves up kind of at a 45 degree angle and then obviously the head goes straight up so anyway i would use that on the left hand side to where when i'm getting ready to draw the bulk of my body my shoulders are behind that decoy and then i would you know have my decoy in the vertical or my, my bow in the vertical position to where I'm ready to draw at any time. Um, but out here where I'm at, a lot of times it's pretty windy. And so I choose not to put it on my bow most of the time. So I actually kind of built my own stand or stake. Um, and I know Garrett with heads up is kind of currently working on some different ways to do what I'm doing, only make a, you know, 
manufactured steak. But anyway, I'll take the bow mount and I'll actually bolt it to kind of a, oh, like a plastic hot wire fence steak or something you get from the farm and home store. Yep. And it's got kind of a, a metal stake to it and you can poke it down in the ground and then it'll, you can prevent it from rotating and stuff. So I'll put that down. I'll actually, you have to cut those down a little bit and make them about now 30 inches tall or so. And then you screw that bow mount to it and then you can slide that decoy into that bow mount and then you can have it, you can just carry it off to your side, just like, you know, you would a bow or anything, you just carrying it along. And then, uh, when it's time to put that thing up, you just, you know, put it out in front of you and say, you're, say you're walking in somewhere. And a lot of times I'll just have it, you know, I'll have my bow in my left hand and the decoy in the right hand already on that stake to where if I'm walking into say a a place where I want to set up to present a decoy or say I'm walking into a ground blind setup, you know, even if I don't plan on using that decoy for the, the hunt in the ground blind, I'll have it with me to where I'll just sit it out beside the blind or something to where if I see a, a buck bedded down 200 yards away, uh, I'm, I'm out, I'm out of the blind and we're going, you know? And so, uh, or I like using it just to cover my movement. So if I'm sneaking yeah. into a, a tree stand or a ground blind, how many times have you had a doe stand up and stare you down and then you, you hit a knee and you're like, uh-huh. please, please don't bust me, you know? And so, <laughs> If you have something like that, even even if you're out in the prairie mule deer hunting, I'll have a, a doe decoy that I'm carrying to where if I hit a knee, if something, if I see something moving or whatever, I'll hit a knee and, and have that thing up in front of my face to where a lot of times I, I get by with it. They dismiss you and they don't, they just kind of think, oh, okay, well, that, that's what that noise was is another deer, you know, and then they'll just kind of work off and you can sneak, sneak, you know, the rest of the way in your tree stand. So Anyway, yeah, that's how I use it. Um, I like to have it on that stake just because when I'm working into an area where I want to, you know, kind of set up my perch to present the decoy again, you know, there's kind of that sweet spot where I feel you don't want to get too close to the deer to present it or when you present it, just because when they stand up, they may be startled that, you know, oh, there's a deer way too close. And that was, that was in your face, you know? So I like to kind of have a little softer approach to where I, I kind of set up a spot around, you know, 75 yards or so. And, uh, but anyways, I will stick that thing in the ground and uh, just kind of hide behind it and kind of clear out the area around me, you know, to where I'm, I'm ready to maneuver and shoot on either side of the decoy. And the, the good thing about having it on that stake is, you can kind of reach over and rotate that decoy. So like, as you know, sometimes they'll try to circle downwind Mm -hmm. and obviously you're, you're going to need to make a decision to make a shot before they completely get downwind, but you can kind of rotate that decoy as they're turning and you can just kind of rotate your body and the whole decoy setup to where you're always going to be hidden behind it. So that's why I like having hands free plus when you pull your bow back, you know, you're, you're going to be leaning around the decoy to shoot or whatever, but you're, you're completely hands-free and you don't have that thing hanging on your bow. Yeah. But there are circumstances where I do feel like having it on your bow is really nice because you're always going to be tucked in tight behind that decoy when it's on your bow too. So there's, there's give and take to about every circumstance, you know. As you're describing that, one of the things that I 
I'm curious about it actually it actually happens before that whole presentation of the decoy. It's actually the question or the, the, the situation of when do you start trying to make your approach? Cause, cause I'm, I'm mm-hmm. we're assuming like we've spotted a buck, we've spotted a buck that you want to shoot. And, uh, I guess this is a, this is another question. Will you ever make a move on a buck with a decoy like this if he's solo? Or do you only ever use this when he's locked on a doe and it's one of those very specific buck on a doe trying to breeder kind of situations? Will you will you chase down a cruising buck or something like that? Or is that a lost cause? No, a, a solo buck is, I, I don't know if I want to say equally as effective, but you have a, a high percentage that he'll come in and take a look at you and, and probably challenge you just because what are we focusing on at this time? You know, that time of year we're testosterone, right? So yeah. they're very territorial. They want to be the boss at all times and, and they're going to see that decoy and they're going to say, this guy's in my area cruising for the does that I'm cruising for. And, and I'm going to make sure he, you know, gets out of here. So that's going to be the the mentality that I have all the time. Now there, I will warn folks, there have been times where, you know, if, if there's a, a buck and, and say he's a three or four year old buck, if this, if you approach him with this decoy, you may make him go the other direction just because that tells you one, he's not the dominant buck in the area. He's probably got his tail whooped already. Mm-hmm. And, but the way I look at it is if, if there's a buck that goes the other direction because he's been whooped, is that the deer that I want? Right. You know, I focus on the most mature buck in the area and, and one that's very confident in that. And so that's what I like. You know, do you so ever, if, do you ever see young bucks coming in? Because I've seen young oh, bucks yeah. coming to regular decoys. So if I want to kill a two year old or even like if I was out there, just need to kill a, a buck of any type to fill a freezer. Could I kill one like this? It is not out of the question ever for any age class of deer to come to a decoy. Are they going to be a little more reluctant or careful? Absolutely. But a lot of times a deer is a deer and they're social animals. They want to, they want to know who it is. And so usually you're going to have a reaction. They're going to circle in and, and scent check or take a look or whatever. So, you know, it's not out of the question, but just don't be disappointed if you know, how many times have you grunted or called it a buck oh, yeah. and he goes the other direction because he's, he's been down that road before more you know? times than that. So <laughs> exactly. So, you know, just, I was, I was just warning folks, you know, don't be disappointed yeah. and say, I'll throw, throw the decoy in the air and say, ah, this doesn't work. Yeah. You know? So, so, yeah. so I'm wondering also like, when do you know it's time to go? So let's, let's imagine when you're, you're up glassing on a hill in your case, you're hunting open country, you're up on a hill, you've been glassing, you spot a buck. Um, do you always, do you see that buck and then it's like, go, okay, right now we got to get him. Or do you watch a while and try to let them bed or try to get them to slow down? And then once you know where they kind of slowed down, then you try to make a move. Can you walk me through that thought process? Cause I think that's probably a big fork in the road point for people. It's certainly a, a big, it, it could make or break the whole deal. And what I tell people is anytime they cannot see you say you need to cover ground. And it's just like a spot and stock situation without a decoy. When are you going to make your move? Well, whenever they can't see you. So if they go into a, a, a thicket for a short time, you know, you're going to, there's been times where I've 
ran. I've sprinted and, and I've told people with me, I, I, I'll prepare them say, okay, listen, they're about to go down in this ravine. And as soon as they get out of sight, we're going to sprint to that next yucca plan, or we're going to sprint to that next fence line or whatever it is. And so it's chess match and you're, you're constantly doing this until you're within that zone where you want to present that decoy. And, and you have to use your hunting instincts and it, there's no magic potion or right answer because every single time you're faced with something different, obstacles, people driving by, you know, it, it's just a, a situation that you just have to make a decision. And do you make the right decision every time? No, but I've gotten to the point now where I've seen, I, I've been through a lot of things that didn't work and I've learned the lessons the hard way. And, and I'm, my percentage is getting better by the day. You know, do I have it completely figured out? Never, you know, but, <laughs> but I'm hopefully getting my percentage better each day. So, yeah, I mean, the, the answer is try to do your best to hunt without, like you're hunting without the decoy and, and get in those positions where, you know, it's a spot and suck situation. You're going to try to, you know, get in there. Now, when I think back to say someone who tree stand hunts and, you know, they see one bedded down or locked down. And, you know, a lot of times if you're tree stand hunting, there's going to be plenty of cover. Um, and, and I would, that's a slam dunk to me, man. Like if, if I, if I'm able to climb down from a tree stand and I have any terrain at all to work in close to that, that deer that's bedded with a doe or whatever, even bedded by himself, I'm going to use whatever terrain I can, you know, to, you know, use a drainage to, to circle around, you know, a little bit to get on the other side of them or whatever it is. I mean, so yeah, I, what do you think about this in that scenario? So envisioning trying to do this in, you know, further to the East where I was, let's say I'm tree stand hunting in Michigan and it's, you know, November 10th. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to bring my decoy just in case I get in a scenario like this. So I'm up in the tree Mm -hmm. and then lo and behold, I see a big buck locked on a doe out there, 150 yards in some thick, nasty, weedy stuff. And Mm -hmm. they bed down and Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, all right, this is why I brought that decoy. Let's do it. Now I sneak out of my saddle. I get down to the bottom of the tree. I grab my decoy. And then I all of a sudden realize well, shoot, I've got 150 yards between me and him, and I'm in some good bedding cover. So there's probably mm-hmm. does around here. There's does bedded. Mm-hmm. There's other deer. Do you worry about spooking all those other deer when you're moving in, or do you say, you know what, it's an aggressive move. Some deer are going to spook. That's okay, because when this buck sees this buck that I hold up, he's not going to care about anything else. What's your take on that? Yeah, I would, being that you have the elevated position to you know, I would probably spend as a, a little bit of time uh, analyzing the area. You know, really focusing on, okay, did I see any? Did I see a, a doe group work into this area? That you know, can I avoid that area if I get down? Can I can I kind of maybe back out and circle around and avoid that little pocket of does in order to get on the other side of that field or in in that other little drainage coming in that'll take me right to where he's bedded or whatever. Obviously, like I said, you still have to make those decisions to, of uh, you know, use your hunter instincts to avoid other deer. Um, but you know, if if one happens to spook, um, if you have that thick a cover, chances are that buck only has one thing on his mind, and unless unless you spook the doe that he's with, 
you're probably going to be in a pretty good spot because yeah. you know you're still in the game because if she doesn't leave he's not leaving either yeah and and he's used to you know <laughs> the rut is a crazy time and the deer know that deer going to be moving around all over the place and he has one thing on his mind he's going to be locked down on and focusing he's laser focused on that and that only and until she stands up he's not going to stand up or if he does stand up he's going to send check and reposition and bed again and so if you know i would just be confident that as long as you put yourself in a position to where you can get to him without messing his dough up you're going to be in good shape yeah now is there ever a situation where you would see a buck you want and you would read the situation as one that you just can't make a play on. Like, is there ever, mm-hmm. if it's completely still with zero wind, or if he's in the middle of a stubble field and there's zero cover, it, would mm-hmm. you would you always go for it? Is there always a way to make something work? Or are there other things like that that are just, nope, this isn't going to work. I'm just going to keep watching and hope he goes somewhere else or something like that. Yeah, I, I would say that I would try to keep my position in an elevated spot, whether it's a tree stand or on a hill or whatever. And I would, if I, if there was just no way, and I've, I've ran into those situations a lot of times, like, you know, like a wheat stubble fill or something, you know, you only have like 18 inches tall cover and he, he may be out there for a reason. Cause he's, again, he can see all other deer approaching and he wants to defend his doe. And I, I actually had this happen a couple of years ago. And so we, you just have to sit and wait. And as you know, like we just mentioned, the rut is a crazy time. And if, if you're not satisfied with the current situation, wait five minutes, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. it it changes all the time with the rut. I mean, how many times have you seen, you know, a a hot doe get up and and move a hundred yards and lay back down, you know? So just being patient is, is, as long as you're in, as long as you have one in your sights, I would say, just be patient because like it's likely he's going to move to a position where he's approachable before dark. Okay. So you talked about the fact that when you decide to make that approach, that you're waiting till he can't see you Mm -hmm. and you like to get within like 75, 80 yards if possible before you even consider Mm -hmm. presenting the decoy. Mm -hmm. And we talked about sometimes you got to run, you got to cover that distance. Walk me through that point where you get to the, you get close enough where you think, okay, I got to go from covering ground mode to now it's sneak mode. Uh, right. When do you shift into sneak mode and give me the details? Like how slow are you going? Are you belly crawling? Are you crawling on all fours? Uh, how do you manage that? And how, how much do you need to worry about that when you have a decoy versus when you don't? Cause I imagine that maybe you get away with a little bit more since you're holding that up in front of you. Maybe uh, talk to me about sneak mode for Travis Glassman. Yeah. So obviously I, like anybody, I, I like to cover as much ground on my feet <laughs> just cause it's comfortable. Um, I minimize crawling or even belly crawling as much as possible, but there are times where it's necessary. And, you know, I, I just turned 40 and, uh, still young enough to do it, but each day goes by and it's <laughs> like, I, I would prefer to just walk, you yeah, know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I mean, I, I try to get as close as possible, say, say there's a, you know, a ground barrier, you know, whether it's a fence line or a weed throw or a terrace or whatever, and, and you're able to get as far as you can. Well, then it's, then once you get there, you're glassing, it's like, okay, well, here we go. We know that, you know, this is it. We've got to either crawl on all fours, which is usually what 
is, is usually all it takes is just kind of crawling on all fours. And like I said, I'll have my bow in my left hand and the decoy on the stake in my right. And it's just kind of like shuffling both pieces of equipment ahead of me and just keep, keep crawling as close as you can. And if it's super calm out, obviously you got to be very careful and you got to kind of move things out of your way, whether it's move weeds or, you know, just kind of think like a, you know, a mountain lion where you're just doing one, one arm at a time. And you're, you know, you're just sneaking in as, as very slow as you can. And every little movement that you make has a purpose. And, but a lot of times, like I said, I'm thankful because we have some wind and it breaks up the noise and, and you're able to kind of get a little more aggressive. And so you're just kind of, you know, the only, I think you're worried about is the deer seeing you. So all you've got to do is just keep your, your head down and you can just kind of keep shuffling through all the cover and you're just fine. So, um, but yeah, I mean, just doing your best to get within that range where you feel like you want him to see that you're a buck that's approaching him. Uh, that may be 50 yards. You know, if, if you're in thick cover, he may not see you at 50 yards. Um, so every situation is different. And I would say, try to present the decoy. I I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to the extreme of trying to sneak within 20 yards and just popping up a decoy all of a sudden, you know, and, and I, you know, there may be points where some of the cover is thick enough that you have to get very close. And that's where I would probably introduce some grunt calls and stuff like that. So, you know, he's, he's bedded down tight and he's in heavy cover and, and I would probably throw out some soft grunts and have that decoy already up in front of me or on the stake in front of me. And I'll, I'll be clipped on my D loop, just ready to pull back. If he gets up and starts marching in, because yeah. if it happens, when it happens, it's usually going to be that he's not stopping. Um, I've never had him sprint and charge, but I've had him lay their ears back get that glazed over look in their eyes and they, <laughs> they are coming. And, and if you haven't ever experienced it eye to eye, I know a lot of people have seen it happen from a tree stand or whatever. It is, you almost can't snap them out of that trance. And a lot of people are like, well, don't they see you behind that decoy? <laughs> they are so fired up and, and angry that I have seriously had to stand up and yell to snap them out of the trance that they're in, because I honestly think they don't even look. I think that they're prepared for, um, you know, the other buck to react and they're just prepared to kind of curl up and just engage in a fight. And yes, yeah, so you know how, I mean, you know how it is. Like, I don't know if you've been in a position where you're just so angry that something made you just mad, you know, yeah. and, and it, it takes like, that's all you're focused on. And yeah. it takes a, a bit to kind of help, you know, get back to thinking normally. <laughs> yeah. So, so. If, you, if you're doing this and you have a buck come in that you don't want to shoot, mm-hmm. is that what you literally have to do is like stand up and scare him away so that he doesn't charge you? There are times that you have to do something to snap him out of that, to get him to move on. Unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> that's pretty wild. Um, yes. (laughs) So, so let's, let's imagine that you, you snuck in, you got within your comfortable range of that, you know, 
am I right that 75 yards is usually like ideal? Sometimes you'll go closer if you have to, but is that like your sweet spot? Yeah, I would say 50 to 75 is a good range. I mean, sometimes you may not be able to get any closer and you have to, to present it a little bit further away. So last year, um, I was decoying and filming for my wife's hunt and she was kind of right behind me and I, we've done this several times, so we've kind of got it down now, but this buck was bedded with a doe in a corn stubble field. And the, the closest we could get was like 150 yards. And the only option that we had is to sit and wait for the situation to get better to where we could get closer or to just sit down and present the decoy and hope for the best. And which is what we ended up doing. Thankfully, the doe actually got up and saw that there was another deer, our decoy, and just slowly started feeding our direction just because I think she was curious. She, she didn't put her head up on alert. She just looked at us, went back to kind of feeding around and she just, it took like an hour, but she finally made it over our direction and the buck would stand up and snort wheeze at us from 150 yards and would not come charge. He would not, he, he had his doe away, far enough away that he was comfortable. But eventually when that doe closed the distance, he got between us and the doe just to protect. And finally he came into about 35 yards and the doe, I think he kind of like veered the doe away from us and she kind of started working away. And we knew that was our opportunity because as soon as the doe started leaving, we know he, we knew he was going to follow. So in that situation, he never did a hundred percent commit, but he it came, he came to 35 yards and my wife made a perfect shot and it was great. But I've also seen where you get an aggressive personality and he make, he may stand up at 150 yards and see that decoy and he's coming yeah. and he doesn't care if he's leaving his dough, he's going to run you off. So again, be prepared for about any different situation. Yeah. So, so. In, in that case, when you just can't close in more ground, you guys in that case decided to wait it out to present and hope he comes your way. Is there ever a time that mm-hmm. you could actually sneak behind that decoy and just walk right towards him? Like, is that, does that ever work and just, just be crawling or walking, knowing he mm-hmm. sees you, but you're behind the decoy and try to cover, close the distance right. from 150 to 40 or something. Does that ever work so there has been times where i have done that um i would make sure that you have i would i use the rule of thumb if you have tall enough cover so like say crp grass that's you know waist high or something that's going to break up your legs moving too much um that's that's what that's what makes my decision for me because if they see the the deer sticking up above, say, CRP grass or something, that's natural. And, and they don't mind if you approach them. I would do it in small increments. So I would go 20 yards at a time and hit a knee and just just kind of read the deer and see. If you can tell that they're not liking it, you'll be able to, they'll be able to tell you that real quick. You'll, they'll kind of like put their ears back and kind of turn and start walking a little bit away or whatever. But if they're accepting it or if they're feeding and not caring, then you can just do, you know, 10, 20 yard increments at a time and definitely close that distance. And then you may um, get close enough that you trigger his aggression to to finally come at you. Um, 
a couple of years, that was probably five or six years ago, we used a mule deer decoy. It's, it was a doe on this mule deer buck. And it was honestly a Hail Mary. And so there was a mule deer buck with his does out in a, a wheat stubble field. Thankfully, the stubble was tall enough that it, it was doing just what I said. And it was kind of covering our, our lower body movement. And we did exactly what you just said. The sun was kind of setting in the West. I mean, it was up still. So we were kind of like, you know, really bright. The sun was on our face and on the decoy. We walked from a quarter of a mile across a flat open wheat stubble field. And we did what I just said. We would go increments and we just kept getting closer and closer and closer. And finally that mule deer because they're herd animals, this is a totally different thing from whitetails, but he saw a deer approaching and his instinct is, you know, kind of thinking of a, a herd animal. He wants to scent check that doe that's approaching and he wants to see if that doe that hasn't been with him all day is getting close to breed. Or I've also seen where a mule deer buck will circle his does similar to like an elk would and they will push the herd to you to kind of gather you all up. And so that it does work to approach with the decoy out in front of you, but I would be careful because it's not high percentage. Okay. I, I have used it in a Hail Mary situation. Okay. Uh, now it seems like another one of the options you've mentioned in a situation like this, where at some point you get as close as you can get, or the cover <clears throat> is, you know, the cover is blocking you in some way or something. And you've, you've said a couple times that sometimes you'll introduce some calling. Can you give me a little more detail about specifically like how loud is it? Is it always grunts or snort wheezes? Do you ever rattle? Do you ever do anything else? Like what's, what's the when and how on, on possibly calling? Sure. I would always recommend starting out as soft as you can. Um, just enough to get their attention. Um, most of the time, what I'm trying to do, if, if they're not seeing the decoy, um, is just get their attention, get them to stand up, get them to see the decoy. Cause that, is going to be the time where they're going to make that decision, whether they're going to come in or not. So if I feel like I'm in a great position and I don't want to, I don't want to get any closer, but they haven't seen the decoy yet. I'll, I'll sit there for a while and let them naturally stand up because that's going to be the, the, the least um, impactful as far as a potential negative effect. Um, I would let them naturally see it if possible but if I'm impatient or something's about to happen, the wind's going to switch or whatever, I'll force it. I'll try to grunt as soft as I can, give it to them to where it's not, you know, intrusive and uh, let them see that decoy and, and make that decision on their own, whether they want to come in or not. Um, snort wheeze too, obviously, you know, either one, if, if they say they stand up and they are with their doe and they're at 80 yards and they don't want to come in then, then I'll do a snort wheeze and I'll do, I'll do a lot of different challenges like that. You know, some, some louder grunting or some more snort wheezes or whatever, and try to get them angry enough to break away. And so, yeah, I mean, again, a visual plus the sound of a call vocalizations, whatever, every single thing you do increases your chances. Rattling. Is that ever a tool? I wouldn't be afraid of it. I normally don't carry any rattle system um, when I'm doing this type of run and gun hunting. Um, but it certainly does work and it certainly does get their attention. And I've, 
obviously we've all seen them react aggressively toward rattling too. So, Hey, if, if you want to try it, if you want to, you know, that's something I just haven't spent a whole lot of time. I mean, I've rattled a lot of bucks in from a ground blind or a tree stand. Yes. But, um, as far as carrying something on this, you know, spot and stock situation, I normally don't. Yeah, that makes sense. But it I would s- work, Mark. I know it would. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw one time when you were hunting with uh, our fellow uh, pal, Jesse Coots, that there was a mm-hmm. buck like running in the distance so quickly that you almost had to yell at it to get it to see your decoy. Um, yeah. So yep. it, it really does, like, sometimes you just got to get their attention somehow. And if they're getting out of there and you, they still haven't mm-hmm. seen you, you kind of got to get crazy, it seems. <laughs> Correct. And and honestly, you know, speaking of Jess, you know, we spent a little bit of time together hunting and, and he's always a hoot. And when he did that, that was something new to me. <laughs> and I was like, man, that actually worked. I mean, and it, they, what it was is they just didn't know what they heard. They didn't associate it at all to a human. It was just just like us making, you know, the bamp sound, you know, to try to get him to stop, yeah. you know, just we're doing whatever we can to try to get him to stop. And so he just tried to snap them out of their, their trance, wherever they were headed and, and get him to stop and look. And, and that's exactly what happened because that buck, he was one of those that was aggressive enough that he seen the decoy from 200 yards and he was coming. And, and it, it, sometimes it happens that easy and it's fantastic. So, yeah, I mean, there's times you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. I love it. I, I'd love to see that situation unfold someday. So, <laughs> so okay, the next thing I want to drill in a little bit further on, uh, again, something you mentioned, but I want to get some some more insight, is let's say that buck is, is coming in, or you, you've set up, you've called, you've got his attention in one way or another. Um, and you mentioned that you have the option of having the decoy on the blow itself, excuse me, on the boat itself. But in your case, you use a stake. What's the right way to set the stake? Like what's the right position and what's the right position for you, the hunter? Like, is it as a right-handed shooter, should I always stick it in the ground kind of to my left so I can shoot around the right side? Do you, do you kneel? Do you, I saw you once laying down almost on your side one time. Um, Do you, do you ever, do you always draw while on your knees right behind the bow or do you ever be like crouch way down and then drawback as you stand up or as you come up onto your knees, like give me the specifics on that stuff. Cause that's, I imagine those are very important moments. Yeah. So again, learned a lot along the way and the, the quick answer, uh, as far as, you know, I'm just going to fast, I'll I'll cover everything you just asked, but to fast forward to how to draw around the decoy or how to shoot around the decoy or how to draw your bow. The general answer I give people is, you do not need to worry near as much as you think you do on how to get your bow back. Because again, there's been times where I've had to stand up and yell in order to get these deer to snap out of coming into this decoy if I don't want to shoot them. So use that, use their, I mean, some deer are going to be very curious. Some deer are going to be very careful. And so you have to be a little more careful but don't be afraid to make a movement to get your bow back. I would try to draw behind the decoy as much as possible. If you need to, you know, draw your bow pointing the ground and then lift it up and and anchor and then lean out around the decoy to shoot or whatever. I mean, obviously still be careful as much as possible, but if that deer is coming and you don't feel like you can move at all to get your bow drawn, understand that if that deer comes in 
and realizes that something isn't right, they're going to bolt away from you and you will have never drawn your bow. So I would rather make a little bit of movement to get to full draw. And sometimes, you know, I've waited till they're at five yards. I've drawn when they're going through some cover out there at 20 yards and they're still coming and you may not shoot till they get to five yards, but at least you're at full draw. And so don't be afraid to get your bow drawn behind that decoy because what do deer do when they approach them? You're, they're going to move. I mean, deer, they're going to expect movement because you're a deer, you're an animal, you're, you're moving around and they have not associated any danger at all to that decoy. Otherwise they wouldn't be coming in the first place. So don't be afraid to, to do a little bit of movement, especially if you're crouched down behind the decoy. I mean, my wife always asks me, when do I draw? When do I draw? Cause you know, I'll be kind of guiding her and she'll be right kind of in my back pocket behind me and I'll have the decoy in front of me and probably running a camera and trying to arrange for her and everything else. And she always asks me, do I draw? Do I draw? And I always say, stay patient. He's coming. You've got plenty of time. She's, she always is worried that she cannot move. And every single time, there's never been one time where she has not been able to get to full draw, get to her anchor position, have plenty of time and lean out and shoot because they just are bought into you're a deer. So don't, don't let that scare you. I would say always do what, you know, be as careful as you can to get to full draw. Don't try not to stand up and do anything crazy and try to get to full draw and, you know, but try to try to be as sneaky as you can on doing it, but don't be afraid to, what I would say is make sure that you take an extra second, get to full draw, make sure you've got everything lined up and calmly lean out and, and get that deer in your sights. And of course, adrenaline plays a part in every situation like this. You're, you're extremely amped up, but make sure you're taking extra time to, you know, lean out. And is it going to be maybe a, a different position than you're used to as far as shooting your bow? Yeah, probably. You know, you're, you're on your knees leaning out around a decoy and, you know, I would recommend shooting like that, you know, stick something like that in the ground and lean out around it and shoot. Most of the time, you know, your shots are going to be very close. So you have some flexibility, you know? And so then the other thing to talk about is a shot position as far as (laughs) uh, the deer approaching you. You know, some people don't like taking the frontal shot. Some people, you know, I, I, there's been times where there's that little sweet spot between the front shoulder and say the brisket, right? So there's that pocket, obviously we aim for behind the shoulder, but there also is a nice little pocket in front of the shoulder. If they're quartering to you, if you're at five yards, some of the most devastating kills I've had has been facing on or quartering to now, do I recommend taking a, a facing shot? Never. But if that's all you have, I've seen the quickest kills because it's direct heart shot. You know, I mean, it's right there close and personal. So, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you as far as what to expect, but obviously the deer are going to be approaching you coming straight in. Um, I would say try to be as patient as you can if they kind of swing out away a little bit to try to get a broadside. But, you know, just be prepared. So what's is there is there a distance when. I'm just trying to think like, when do you shoot? Because I got to believe one thing that's going through, at least this 
going to be going through my mind is mm-hmm. I need to get an arrow in this deer before he kills me. Uh, <laughs> what, yes. When is there ever a point when you're like, okay, I, I got to do it now or never. So if he's face on right now, I better take this shot. Otherwise he's coming at me or yeah. so because of that, do you try to take a 20 yard shot before he ever gets to within the zone where you're worried about that? I mean, talk to me about that whole decision because I, I got to believe that sure. I wouldn't be surprised if I find myself in a position where it's, Maybe not the perfect shot that I'd love to have that great broadside shot. But if I don't do this, it's trouble. Right. Like, how, what's your yeah. mindset on all that? So I would, uh, if, if, a, if a buck has committed and he's coming, it's very likely that he's going to come all the way. And you, we've seen on TV a lot, whenever, whenever they get to about five yards or so, they almost pause and it's kind of like, okay, now we're slowing way down and we're ready to charge at any given second. So that's like a ticking time bomb, you know, you don't, you don't know when that's going to happen. So a lot of times I like to shoot when they're coming in around that 10 yard range. That's kind of like when I like to, I don't really like to let them get inside 10 yards too much. I mean, uh, if you watch the video of my brothers a couple of years ago, it, it was like five yeah, yards solid. and it was, I mean, the arrow barely got out of the bow. Now was that arguably waiting too long? Maybe, but we really didn't have a shot before that because he was coming through a lot of thick cover and he, we had a little bit of a gap in the weeds, uh, about that seven to five yard range. And that's when he let the arrow loose. And, but anyway, Again, every situation is different. And I say always use your instinct and, you know, especially keeping yourself safe. And if you can shoot one at 15 yards before they get to that five yard danger zone, please do, <laughs> you know, type of deal. Yeah. So, so is there anything more on that personal safety side of things that we should cover on this other than shoot as soon as you can and, and don't let him linger within that? five yard zone when he pauses, uh, anything else to know to make sure we don't put ourselves in undue harm's way. Obviously know what seasons are in place. There have been times where, and even in the last few years, I know like Kansas introduced a kind of a later mid October doe season and it's just random. It gets thrown in during bow season. So, you know, always be mindful of people being out there with rifles, even if they happen to be you know, even if they're not supposed to be is what I'm saying. So like, you know, if you're, if you have some roads in sight and say there's a truck sitting up on the hill and watching everything you're doing or whatever, I just be careful. I, I would probably sit down, take the decoy down, see how the situation is going to play out. Let them, let them move on because you never know when someone's going to put a, a gun out the window. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously use your best judgment do it, you know, take a pause, do a 360, make sure that everything looks okay. And and you don't see any other hunters and stuff like that. Anytime you're holding a decoy, you have a a small risk that you're taking. Um, but I've never had a close call, um, yet, thankfully. And I hope to never, but you know, know, it's, it's like everything. I mean, just like Turkey, you know, Turkey fan hunting, you know, you're holding a Turkey fan, of course, you know, people with a shotgun, you're, (laughs) <laughs> if, if you come right in, but you know, everyone just use caution and, uh, it says right on the decoy, use this with caution. There's a reason for it. Yeah. So yeah. Well, common sense, right? Yep. What, what else is there when it comes to using this? Have we, have we missed like any other important aspect of how this goes down or, or things you're thinking about? Um, 
Am I missing anything or do you feel like I know the basics to be able to pull off a hunt like this? I think the basics has been covered. You know, I, I, I know we briefly talked about it. I don't know if people caught it or not, but even if you are ground blind hunting or tree stand hunting, pick one of these up and just sit it at the base of the tree, throw a log on top of it and have it there available to where if you see a situation that you can climb down and, and give yourself a lot better chance of killing that buck, it's there. If you don't have it, then you're sitting there for the rest of the day, hoping that deer stands up and the doe runs by your tree stand, you know? And so I would just say, have something like that available and then, you know, try to, uh, everything, you know, everything is all personal experience. So use these tips, but use your personal experiences to help you hone the way that you want to do it. I like the way I do it just because I've been through it all all the situations that lend themselves out here in Kansas. Well, if I go somewhere else, I'm not going to have as much experience with deer behavior, how they, how, how they work through the terrain that you're hunting or anything like that. And so every situation is a learning experience. And again, do I have it completely figured out? Heck no, I'm learning all the time. So I encourage folks to, you know, feel free to reach out to me if you have questions, that's fantastic. But at the end of the day, you need to put in the experience and, you know, five years down the road, if you start doing this, you're going to, you're going to have learned a whole bunch. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, what about a little bit more on the traditional ground game, which I know you've done plenty with as well, which is hunting Mm -hmm. from ground blinds or natural ground blinds. I know you were hunting a deer a handful of years ago. You, you called big Louie and I saw you Mm -hmm. sitting in a tree stand one night for him. And you saw him off in the distance and you realize, you know what, I got to get on the ground and hunt, you know, from eye level. Can you talk to me Mm -hmm. just a little bit about what goes through your mind when you're making a decision like that? Like, when is it time to, if you were tree stand hunting again in a situation like that and Mm -hmm. you decide, okay, the only way to get to him is on the ground. Walk me through how you think about where to set up a ground blind, when to set it up. Is a natural ground blind better than a pop-up ground blind? Can you talk to me about where your head's at on that stuff? Sure. Yeah. So I always like to start with an observation stand or position, you know, uh, sometimes tree stands aren't the best for an observation spot, but in this case, you're right. I was in a tree stand and and it wasn't a uh, high percentage area to kill this deer, but I knew he was staying in that field. And what it was in that circumstance was it was just when bow season started in, in Kansas, we can hunt during the muzzleloader season and it's mid September when that opens, but we have to wear orange for all of September until October 1st. Then we can, then the muzzleloader season's over. So in this case, um, I was wearing orange observing in a tree stand, this buck, which is the biggest buck I've killed. Um, he was stepping out of a standing, uh, we call it cane or or cattle feed you know basically what they do eventually is they come in and swath it and rake it and bale it for winter feeding for cattle and uh i knew that it was a matter of time that that was going to be swathed and baled so i knew once that cover was gone his pattern was completely going to change so i hung a stand in a cedar tree row so it just got me up you know eight to ten feet just so i could see over top of this field and i seen the you know, from his neck up, I would see him walk some terrace channels to go out to the west edge of this field. And he would stay in there until the sun set. 
And then he would walk across a, an open stubble field to get to a, another standing cornfield. And uh, he just loved that pattern. Now, I, I watched him do that a couple nights. And so I thought, you know, it's time for me to get to the west edge of that field where he stands at, you know, and he gave me about 10 to 15 minutes of shooting light every day. And, you know, and that that's all that he gave. So that was the only chance that I had. So there's no way I was going to kill him in that tree stand. So I ended up going down on the edge of that field and basically just cut some of the cane around me and uh, just kind of tucked myself back off the edge to where when he stepped out on the edge of that field, when he looked down the edge in both directions, he could not see anything sticking out like a human. And so I was back. And so I, I seriously had to, I was sitting there with six to eight foot tall feed to my back, extremely excited for the moment that I would be able to lean forward and look either direction because he came out in different directions every night. I just kept visualizing in my mind, this buck just appearing. And, and that is exactly what happened again. I, I hunted him for several nights doing this, but I would pick the wrong trail or the wrong exit point every night. And finally, I think it was, you know, the sixth or fifth or sixth night or whatever it was in a row. And he stepped out in within bow range and I ended up ranging him and shooting him and everything was fantastic. But, you know, most of the time I don't have a pattern where a, a big deer like that has given me a daylight opportunity. Yeah. But, you know, to answer your question, a, a a natural blind is much better and I will never use a pop-up blind if I can get away with it just because it takes some time for them to get used to that. Now, yeah. if you can set that thing up, you know, in the wide open and let them get used to it is just a normal thing. Deer see random things all the time. They see a, a, a pickup, they see a fuel trailer, you know, from the farmer, they see all of these things that they end up getting used to, uh, you know, whatever it may be. And, and they're fine with that. But if, if I'm moving in quick, I do not like using anything that's going to be new to the area. Otherwise, a, a mature buck like that's going to be hesitant. Yeah. Do you have any anything you've learned over the years when it comes to finding good spots or, or making a good spot as far as a, a natural ground blind? Any advice on how to do that the best way? I like to use natural... Um, areas of cover, whether it's a fence line, because a lot of times, you know, the farmers can't get all the way up to the fences. Um, I like to use the natural weeds that are growing around the fence line. Maybe it's a corner post or something like that. And, and you can gather, you know, a lot of vegetation from the surrounding area and bring it all in. And, and even that, when you make a, even a small change, you still have to have those deer getting used to that. But I always recommend getting out there and doing this well before you're wanting to hunt. You know, a lot of times I'll, you know, I just set up a ground blind last weekend and it's not going to be very well hidden, but I did that with a whole month ahead of me, knowing that it's in a, it's in a natural funnel where deer may move through there during the rut. It's a perfect travel corridor for a cruising buck. And, and I like using the peak of the rut with the decoy situation that we've already talked about, but there is that sweet spot that we all like to hunt in the last, you know, last of October and the first few days of November where those big bucks are ready, but they haven't found that doe yet. And if I have 
you know, I, I'm going to be hunting because I just love to hunt. And even though I may not have that perfect situation where I can go after a deer with a decoy, I like still hunting, you know, a scrape here and there, or I like hunting a natural funnel here and there, you know, because there is a chance that he will move through, you know, I, I'll still hunt just because it's, that's what I do. Yeah. But you know, the chances of seeing a, a big mature buck during daylight, especially in wide open country like this is, is somewhat slim. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what I like about the natural ground blind thing and and you, you did this exactly with that big Louie hunt is that you, there's nothing holding you down from adjusting. So you right. saw him, he came out in a different place. You could make an adjustment the next night. You could make an adjustment the next day if you wanted. Mm-hmm. I mean, even yep. with like a mobile sticks and a saddle set up from a tree, mm-hmm. there's still yep. that, you know, work that has to go into to pulling your set, moving to a new one. And that's much less than guys with portable, I mean, with permanent sets. But right. when you're natural ground blind hunting, you're just, you're just going to go find a nice little spot to cozy up into and move some branches around. And you can mm-hmm. do it and you can make you know, you can make the perfect move, move to the perfect spot with zero inhibitions, like nothing that you have to worry about. Like, ah, gosh, this is going to be a pain in the butt. No, it's not. You're just literally going to walk to the new spot and shift things around a little bit and bam, you're going. Um, So what I like to do, Mark, and I think this would benefit you in Nebraska is, you know, you have a backpack. I would get a low profile camp chair, something that sits low, or Mm -hmm. I even get the little turkey chairs that or they sit only a couple inches off the ground, you know, yeah. that you can kind of lounge back. I'll, I'll strap that thing to my pack and I, I won't know where I'm hunting, but when I go in, I know that where the deer have been working and, and I want to find, you know, an area that's going to be put me in a pretty good position and I'll just kind of clear the weeds out of the grass out or whatever. And I'll, I'll back myself up against a fence post with some weeds in it or, you know, something like that. And I'll just try to sit crouched as low as possible. And like you say, just let the deer be the deer and let them move their natural way without throwing a ground blind up. And like you said, all you got to do, if you need to move, it it may be 50 yards. You can grab that chair and move on down the fence row or, you know, wherever you need to be. So I I like exactly what you just said. Yeah. What about the, the other thing to think about when you're hunting the ground and you already talked about this with the decoy, but it's different without a decoy is getting drawn, getting in position for a shot and getting drawn from a natural ground blind position. Uh, can you talk to me about some of the things that you're either preparing for ahead of time or thinking about in the moment when not having that nice distraction of a decoy? Yeah, that's a tough one. And it's, if you've done any spot and stock hunting at all, um, you have to definitely pick your movements very carefully. And obviously when a deer's looking away or had his head down to eating or anything like that is the time where you want to draw and and make your move to, you might need to raise up six inches to shoot or whatever it is. And yeah, I mean, you're, when a deer is potentially looking your direction, you're locked down and you can't do anything. And, you know, I would say, don't do anything abrupt. Do, even if you draw your bow, practice drawing your bow as slow as you can, you know, and, and just try, try doing that because if they happen to be looking away, but maybe they can still see you out of your, out of their peripheral, you can, you can get by with it by just slowly getting your bow back and and getting on target before they, you know, jump, you know? So 
yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a great answer for you as far as when to draw your bow without a decoy. It's just you have to read the deer's body language and try to make your best decision on when you can move. Yeah. Final question. I've seen you hunt in Crocs. Do you recommend that? <laughs> <laughs> I am so glad you brought that up. No, I do not recommend this. That was the uh, the rookie tip of the year, meaning don't do what I did. Uh, and, you know, so I'm a guy who um, I've got a lot of things going on. I've got a, you know, a busy job. I've got three kids at home. Uh, as, as many folks do, they have a lot of things going through their mind and we don't always do the best job of throwing all of our gear in the truck. Now I recommend during hunting season, uh, getting all, every piece of gear in your truck and just parking your truck to where whenever it's time to go hunting, you don't really have to think too much about, you know, if I have it or not. Well, that day you're right. (laughs) (laughs) I did not pack my boots and all I did, all I had was Crocs to go hunt or to get me from, you know, my house to the hunting area. And, uh, unfortunately when I got out to put on my boots on and, uh, yeah, my boots aren't there. So, uh, <laughs> I ended up hunting that evening in Crocs. Thankfully it was during that September hunt where it was still like 80 degrees and it did not hurt my hunt. Really. I just was sitting down in that, on the edge of that field after big Louie, um, in my Crocs. So and what's, yeah. what's nice about those Crocs, they have all those holes. So they, they really vented really nicely. So your feet wouldn't overheat, right? <laughs> yeah, I was definitely, uh, not overheating that night. Uh, but the, the stench of my scent feet, yeah. you know, was, was nicely escaping through the holes of the yeah. Crocs. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Travis, uh, this is, this is fun. Like I'm, I'm just, I am excited to put this kind of thing into play. Uh, is there, is there any final words of advice or final reminders or or anything you want to leave with people if they're considering taking to the ground more often, whether it be with a decoy or without, uh, anything that we haven't touched on, you want to make sure we touch real quick. The last comment is get aggressive. It's the rut. You, if you're passive during that time frame, and we will, we all live for November. So get aggressive, whether it's with or without a decoy, even if it means get down from a tree stand and sneak, sneak to within, you know, get, get a hundred yards closer to a, a bedded buck with a doe. Your chances are getting greater the closer you get, even if it's creating yourself a nice little ground blind that we just talked about, a natural blind that's closer to where when they get up, it's likely they feed down this little drainage right beside you or whatever it is. Get aggressive because you're you're doing yourself a favor by putting the odds more so in your favor. Yeah, so love it. Well, uh, for people that want to follow along with with your videos or anything you're doing, where can they see? Where can they learn more or see more from you, Travis? You can just simply search Travis Glassman on YouTube, and I have a personal page there. Um, I started that just by you know just to share hunts with buddies and whatnot because they you know I I you can tell stories all day long, but they really are able to see it on YouTube. Uh, and then on Instagram, uh, Travis underscore Glassman, you can follow along there. I post pretty much all my hunting adventures on there. So I do have a Facebook page as well. I don't do as much hunting stuff. If I do, if I am successful, you'll see a picture on there, but, 
I don't do as much, you know, story or anything like that as I do Instagram. Yeah. Well, uh, it's great. I've really enjoyed watching the videos and following along with what you got going on. It is, uh, looks like a very fun way to hunt. So I appreciate you sharing your, your experience and insight. Sure. I'm honored to be on here, Mark. Thanks for asking. And I'm always glad to help. So if anyone wants to reach out, feel free. And, and especially you, Mark, if you're out in Nebraska and, and need something, I'm not too far away. So, uh, give me a call and I'll be glad to help. You got to be careful what you offer. I'm going to be hitting you up soon. <laughs> Thanks, Travis. Uh, don't hesitate. Don't hesitate. Take care, man. And that's it today. Hope you enjoyed this uh, special two-parter with my good old buddy, Dan Johnson, longtime co-host on the show, now the purveyor of Sportsman's Nation, the Nine Finger Chronicles. Make sure you check out all the great stuff he's doing there with his own gig. And big thanks to Travis Glassman as well. Fascinating discussion. Can't wait to put this into action out there in Nebraska. And uh, with that out of the way, thank you for listening. I appreciate you coming along for the ride, tuning in for this one. Best of luck out there on your own hunts. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.